Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. As the name would imply, I am indeed Corey Morgan. I'm going to bend your ear for the next hour and some. And uh, as always, we've got lots to cover. This is our weekly show with the Western Standard, covering news, talking to guests, and uh, hearing my general opinions and rantings on issues of the day. And there's always a lot of issues. It's, it seems to get crazier by the day. I mean, it's, the news is sometimes hard to even believe whether it's real or not. Fake news, you can see why the, the term has become popularized so much. But unfortunately, it seems the craziest of the news out there tends to be the true stuff. We'll cover a whole lot of that. I got a good guest coming in today. It's uh, Jay Hill. He's the former House leader for the Conservative Party of Canada. Many, many years of experience in the House of Commons as a parliamentarian, as we do have a fall session coming up, and we've got uh, a lot of issues about to hit this fall uh, with uh, Justin Trudeau plummeting in the polls. We've got a housing crisis. We have all sorts of fantastic things going on, and uh, we'll see how things are looking going into that season and what we can look forward to, I guess, is, as that goes. Uh, for, so for you guys tuning in uh, live, hey, Use that comment section. I see a few of you there, North Run Greater and others. Uh, absolutely. I love having that discussion going. Send those comments and questions my way or my guests' way. We'll try and get to them. I don't necessarily read them all out, but I do see them all and I appreciate it. Just keep things civil, guys. We don't have to be at each other's throats. We have Twitter for that. So uh, let me get on to what has got me going today. I've got my uh, usual opinion on things. And we do have a serious problem building on us right now. I mean, Canada, we need to have a serious discussion about our immigration levels. We have to have it fast. And it's a subject that conservative politicians, they shy away from as they're going to inevitably be accused of racism. And of course, progressive politicians don't want to get into the issue because it's just been such an effective wedge against the conservatives. The politics have to stop, though, and reality has to set in. Canada is heading into a socioeconomic crisis due to the current immigration policies. A lack of affordable housing is hitting crisis levels across the country. And it's causing citizens and immigrants alike to suffer. While politicians spin their wheels with discussions of everything from rent control to basement suites, but they won't dare touch the immigration issue. One provincial cabinet minister in Nova Scotia even hinted encouraging people with spare rooms to take borders into your homes. Now, a few politicians have the courage to state what's become the obvious. Canada needs to slam the brakes on immigration levels and hard. I mean, to add insult to injury... A recent memo was leaked to uh, Key and Bexley's counter-signal online that exposed that Prime Minister Trudeau was well aware of the crisis his immigration policies are fostering, and he purposely chose to ignore it. I mean, people have accepted that Trudeau is far from the sharpest Prime Minister the nation's ever had. It was quite believable to think Justin truly didn't realize the damages his policies would cause. Not that we should forgive Trudeau for his acts of idiocy, but it's worse when he actually knowingly causes the damage rather than ignorantly. The numbers presented in the memo were chilling. This is what Trudeau saw himself. Things are bad and they're poised to become much worse. Here's a quote direct from the report given directly to Trudeau and authored by Secretary of the Cabinet Janice Charette. CMHC, which is the Mortgage and Housing uh, Corporation, projects that the housing stock in Canada will grow approximately 2.3 units between 2021 and 2030. When it incorporates economic factors alongside demographic factors, it projects an additional 3.5 million additional housing units are needed beyond the current projections to restore affordability. Think of those numbers. We're going to be short three and a half million units within the next seven years if we maintain this immigration course. And that memo states it outright. Immigration is the thing that's causing the challenge. It says the nation's going to need 665,000 new units a year to keep up with demand. 
In 2021, only 223,000 were built. You don't need to be a mathematician to see the looming catastrophe here. So why is Trudeau so fixated, even when warned, on bringing in record numbers of immigrants when it's harming the nation so much, even when the memos are coming in? Well, there's no sense beating around the bush here. The reason Trudeau won't bend is because he's a self-serving narcissist who's using mass immigration to try and cover up his years of gross fiscal mismanagement. Trudeau and his finance minister, Christia Freeland, have been crowing of late about how Canada is among the world leaders in GDP growth since the pandemic. And yeah, that's true. The reason, though, Canada's experiencing modest GDP growth, by the way, is because the massive numbers of immigrants have been brought into the country. Immigrants bring resources and skills, and they do help spur the economy. It gives the nation an injection of economic activity and bumps the overall GDP. The problem is, though, the GDP per capita is falling. See, while the nation as a whole is reporting growing economic numbers, citizens as individuals are becoming poorer. The economic bump from immigration isn't enough to cover the spreading of the wealth among more people. I mean, think of the examples this way. Look at India. Their economy and GDP have been growing for years, and good on them. But the nation still has a long way to go to catch up to the Western world. Their GDP is $3.2 trillion compared to Canada's $1.98. Gross GDP numbers don't reflect the nation's affluence, though, as well as per capita numbers do. India's GDP per capita, for example, is $2,250. Canada's GDP is $52,000. Now, Canada's per capita GDP numbers are seriously lagging, though, compared to comparable countries. Australia, over $60,000. And the United States is at $71,000. Ours is dropping. With the abundance of resources in Canada, the low per capita GDP figures have to be due to poor governance. Using mass immigration to cover for the government overspending is participating in essentially a Ponzi scheme. Eventually, this house of cards is going to collapse, and while Canadians will suffer dearly, Trudeau probably will have headed out to retire on a tropical island somewhere by then. He doesn't care, and as the leaked memo proves, he knows exactly what he's been doing. Healthcare systems are strained, educational institutions are packed, and housing prices are going through the roof. We probably can't avoid the looming economic crash due to the unchecked immigration numbers, but we can still mitigate it. We, and I'm not calling to bring immigration numbers to zero. We need new citizens, and immigration, immigrants bring a plethora of benefits to the country. But we can and must dramatically reduce those numbers right now until we can keep up with it. The current numbers are unsustainable, and a housing crisis in a winter nation can be catastrophic. Not to mention tensions are going to form between citizens and new Canadians, whether we like that or not. It's not fair to either existing citizens or the new immigrants. Political leaders need to find their courage and call this out. And yes, they're going to be called racists and xenophobes by the usual suspects. In the long run, though, they could be praised for mitigating the damage caused by a prime minister whose sociopathy won't allow him to do the right thing for the nation. And that's what's got me going today, guys. I mean, the housing crisis, it's, it's been topping political discussion in uh, every level, municipal, provincial, and of course, federal. But nobody's pointing well, some people are pointing to the, 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 one of the biggest challenges with it. I mean, we've got students coming in this year. I was listening to that uh, as I tortured myself with Legacy Talk Radio this morning. 800,000 foreign students coming into Canada this year. Same sort of thing. Uh, it, it helps the post-secondary institutions. They charge a premium for the foreign students to come in and take those courses. But the problem is, of course, that's 800,000 individuals that need to be housed. That's 800,000 seats at the, uh, you know, the classroom, the lecture halls that are being taken up. And we don't necessarily have the ability to keep up with that. We're looking at the, the short-term economic gain. And uh, in the long run, though, we're, we're causing a very serious problem. Plus, a lot of people are talking. It's not just 
again, existing, you know, citizens who are suffering because of this. A, a real problem is a lot of those students, they're coming over, they're coming in for the school year. They can't find somewhere to live. I mean, they don't have local connections, networks. It's not even like they can couch surf with friends. This is a real problem, but it's just so unforgivable to find out that Trudeau actually knew about it. He was told, because everybody's been saying outright that the immigration levels don't cause the housing problem. He knows it does, and he didn't care. Because again, his ideology, his hopes for a legacy, something like that, uh, put it beyond uh, you know, imposing any reality on it. Uh, let's see, you know, let's see what else we got. Le looking at the Western Standard, I'm afraid Dave uh, Naylor, our, our news editor, usually comes in at this time and gives us an update and everything else that's going on out there. But uh, he's not available today, so you're stuck with me for the whole thing, at least until Jay Hill gets in here. But uh, one of the great stories that's been sitting high up there on the on the Western Standard site there, westernstandard.news, is uh, from Linda Slobody, and she writes fantastic columns, very prolific on uh, the Western Standard, and uh, saying, not enough soldiers to stand on guard for thee or anybody else. This is another problem happening in Canada. Our armed forces are, they're, they're atrophying, they're, they're, they're shriveling. We've been hearing about this for years, and again, same sort of thing. The Prime Minister pays lip service to it. He loves flying overseas and pretending Canada is a player with NATO or other large nations. They don't take him seriously. They don't take Canada seriously. Part of it is we can't pull our weight when it comes to military spending. We won't pull our weight when it comes to military spending. So yeah, we're at 34,000 uh, people now in our uh, complete uh, uh, military forces, and it's expected to drop to 31,000. Uh, again, uh, and this was uh, warned by our retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel David Redmond, we've got a real problem as our forces continue to decline. And, and you know, it's not just for overseas peacekeeping, things like that. We have seen with emergencies, fires, a lot of domestic needs, uh, having a large, uh, uh, you know, armed forces or people on the ground, it can be very, very good and, uh, you know, beneficial for the country. But we're letting that lag. Again, this is the the government, the nation of kicking the can down the road. They they just don't want to make hard decisions. So these are, shouldn't even be hard decisions. Nah, we'll just put that off. We'll put that off. We'll put that off. There's going to be a big, big mess to clean up whenever the heck Trudeau's out of there. Uh, let's see. Something else to talk about, of course, uh, the Tamara Leach, uh, Chris Barber trial. That's been going on. So, uh, you know, the full criminal trial started, I believe, yesterday in um, uh, the Ottawa and the courts there. They're uh, quibbling over whether it was an occupation or not. It's going to be a little painful watching the... the defense and uh, you know such going at each other i mean basically they're rehashing all of the discussions that we've heard over the last year particularly with the bail hearings when they were uh, inexcusably holding uh, you know tamara leach uh, without bail as if she was really going to present a, a threat of uh, forming another convoy to go out to ottawa or something like that i don't think uh, as cindy says they're not going to get a fair trial i i don't know um you know we'll see there's some justices who do take their jobs seriously, but it's hard to say. I mean, they there's definitely the government wants to make an example of them. They want to crush them down. We're seeing the weight of the law falling on people for organizing this peaceful protest. And it was. It was a problematic, you know, it, it certainly caused a lot of uh, ire and, and economic disruption and many things, but it was peaceful compared to many, many protests that weren't of all sorts. We've never seen such a prosecution of people for something like this. And... Uh, no, Cindy, I, I doubt they will get a fair one because we know we, we've seen that recently as well, that uh, Trudeau, you know, uh, the amount of judges who coincidentally were appointed by Trudeau and happened to have donated to his uh, political causes or 
there's quite an overlap going on in there. So they want to keep Justin Trudeau happy. The biggest crime the convoy committed was to embarrass Prime Minister Tr Justin Trudeau, the egotistical, uh, vain little man Prime Minister we have. And of course, he he looked. You know, he doesn't even really care so much what Canadians think. He wants to look good on the world scene. And the world looked and saw a man who had lost control of his own country, who invoked the Emergencies Act against his own citizens over a protest that probably could have been calmed if he just had the wits. And that's a big ask of him. I understand that. But still, to get out there and actually communicate them with them at first, or at least gain that high ground, get out there talk to them he wouldn't do it he wouldn't do it he dug his little heels in with his cute little socks and said no let's invoke the emergencies act just like my dad did because i think justin wants to he's got some some big shoes to fill there uh, with the, the, his father and that wasn't the right path to go to try and do so um let's see mr stonely uh commenter saying almost every problem canada has is due to immigration see that i disagree with uh, you see and that's where the discussion goes a little wrong somewhat too and everything the problem isn't immigration in itself. It's unchecked immigration. It's just mass immigration. We get 500,000 people a year, and that's not including the students and temporary workers and visas and things like that coming in, and we can't necessarily accommodate them. But we still need immigrants coming in from all over the world, all sorts of countries. And they bring in all sorts of skills, fantastic benefits for us in, in many, many ways. So, I mean, it's not a black and white conversation, this one. It's a matter, though, of responsibly having immigration, you know, looking at it with a plan, making sure that you can integrate and accommodate, whether socially or economically or both, when you're bringing people in. And uh, we are not doing that. We are not doing that. I, I was listening and it was, uh, you know, we, a lot of Ukrainian refugees have been brought into Canada and people have been putting them up and things such as that. We're actually having some that have been saying it. They're leaving Alberta and going back to Ukraine because... They, they can't afford to, the cost of living out here, and they're having difficulty settling in and, and getting established. Like, if you're going to bring in the refugees, great, uh, but you've got to be able to accommodate them, and that's what we don't do. We social, you know, virtue signal. I shouldn't say we so much, but I guess, you know, it's on our behalf, and Trudeau loves doing that, so he's going to be the world savior and offers to bring so many people in, which is great, but if you can't properly house and accommodate them, then you're not doing them any favors, nor anybody else around them. Again, it's not saying go to zero, but uh, we've got to reestablish, you know, what the heck is, is, is going on, uh, you know, what's going to be the proper levels to, to balance things with us right now. As I said, it's a Ponzi scheme right now, and uh, it's, it's, it's for Trudeau's political benefit, not for the nation's benefit. All right, but so, you know, setting the federal stage a little bit before I get to my guest here, who's just uh, come in and been seated. Uh, it's, we got Jay Hill in, as I said earlier, was the uh, conservative house leader uh, for quite some years. You were in politics uh, in parliament for quite a while. I uh, don't want to fully date you there, but you're a little past 40. And uh, yeah, I love it when you come in because you can add so much, you know, uh, experienced insight into the, the federal scene. And we're coming into another uh, political season this year that looks like a lively one. Well, thanks, Corey. It's always a pleasure to be on your program yeah. and uh, exchange points of view with yourself um, and uh, obviously have a voice with the audience that you've uh, uh, attracted to your program. Yeah, thanks. So we, we've got what's obviously going to be a very heated session Coming up. I mean, they always are, but some can be worse than others. And, and we've got a, a federal government that seems to finally be on the rocks, I guess you could say. I mean, in the polls, they're really uh, dipping terribly. Uh, the prime minister has been trying a cabinet shuffle and other little things to see if he can't reset the clock. And it doesn't seem to have worked. 
what do you think, you know, we, I guess strategically, we can look for it too from the liberals to try and reestablish themselves as this session hits. I mean, they've got to really try and take control. Well, they do. And uh, I don't see anything on the horizon, Corey. I mean, we haven't heard of any new initiatives, any new government legislation. Uh, it's a bit early because we're still a couple of weeks out of uh, the reconvening of Parliament on the 18th. So it's a little bit early to know exactly what legislation the government's going to be bringing forward uh, when uh, the House of Commons starts sitting again. Uh, but we haven't heard anything, you know, that would be sort of... Um, a piece of legislation, perhaps a bit controversial, but uh, certainly with widespread support that could shift the focus, in particular the focus of the media, but also of the opposition parties away from uh, a secession of, of scandal. And the, as you were mentioning, just the immigration issue alone, uh, just before I uh, came on your program, there are so many issues. I was taking a look at it when I knew I was going to come on your show and uh, it's going to be very difficult for the opposition to focus and narrow it down to, say, two or three issues, because there's so many uh, that have been a, a minor crises for Trudeau and his, uh, and his government. And immigration is one. I mean, because it's directly linked to uh, the housing crisis, right, as, you're, as you were saying, is that what, why are we increasing immigration. We should be decreasing it. But why are we increasing uh, immigration when there are two major uh, problems for new immigrants? One is to uh, get some reasonably priced housing, if they can find any at all. And the second one is the dismal state of our healthcare system. You know, are they going to be able to get a doctor for themselves and their families? Uh, and yet Trudeau seems to be oblivious to this. And that's just one of the crises that is facing this government. So It'll be interesting to see what's the focus of question period in particular. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, like, when you look at the polls right now, what people say is their top issue, the, the, the main one that's hitting everybody, it's cost of living. And that, exactly. that kind of packs in food and housing, post-secondary education, you name it, everything's going through the roof. Owning a car is expensive right now. Everybody's worrying about that. And there are a whole pile of things contributing to that rising cost of living, whether it's interest rates being hiked, whether it's the immigration, whether it's... Uh, uh, supply chain issues still from COVID. I mean, all sorts of contributing things. But the prime minister seems fixated on his ideological legacy, the, the climate change, the carbon tax. The, I mean, I, I'm just, my speculation is they need to make an ideological shift, but is this a government that's capable of doing that or is he just set in his ways now? Well, I think you've really hit it right, uh, you know, the major issue right on the head here uh, when you talk about it. It really, truly is government by ideology. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. You haven't seen anything like this, Corey. Uh, I would argue we've never had anything, a government that is so driven ideologically uh, to impact every segment of the economy uh, everything to do with uh, people's everyday way of life. And finally, it's starting to resonate even outside of Western Canada. I mean, the West is always the first to uh, really support the freedoms and our, our democracy. Uh, but it's finally starting to sink in a little bit down in East, in the central, central Canada as well. Now, whether this government can shift at all, I don't believe they can. They certainly haven't shown any, any sign of it for eight years we have to remember he has been in office, he being Justin Trudeau, for eight long years now. And uh, 
it really boggles the mind that this guy could not only get elected with a, originally in a majority and then twice more with a minority, but effectively a majority because of the weakness of Jagmeet Singh. Um, there's going to be some major issues. As you know, the trial of Chris Barber and Tamara Leash, that travesty of our justice system is underway right now. And it's scheduled to complete roughly about the time when the House will start sitting. And regardless of how the verdict goes uh, for those two individuals, I think it's going to be incredibly damaging for the government because it's really going to point out the failure of this prime minister and this government to properly address the concerns of everyday Canadians. Yeah, and it's just rehashing, I guess, another segment of that was an indication of a government in a panic, a government that had lost control of its own citizens and its own city for, for crying out loud. And yeah. it's just nothing else that they need to distract themselves with as, as this session comes forward. But the, the as you, you pointed out as well, like the shift, I think that stands out the most when we're looking at polling anyways, it's not just one outlier. It's been pretty consistent. The, the liberals are in free fall right now. We haven't seen anything like that since they got in. No. The, the demographic breakdown. I mean, so Conservatives have typically been popular, most of them with folks like us, uh, you know, gray in the hair, uh, Westerners, and, and a little past 40. Uh, but, I mean, this isn't the growth of that demographic in support for the Conservatives. The youth are turning towards the Conservatives. Women who typically didn't support Conservatives are turning towards Conservatives. Like That's showing a, more of a sea change, a shift in the, in the mood of the nation that, uh, again, I, I can't believe the Liberals, I mean, they're... they're usually astute political players, they, they can't seem to see this trouble coming on the horizon. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the, the backroom boys are saying, uh, if it leaks out what they're saying to Trudeau, uh, as far as advice on that front. It, because as you say, their uh, voting pool, as it were, is shrinking. Um, and uh, so we'll have, we'll have to see. Um, there was a great article in National Post, Corey, today, about uh, 12 conservatives, I believe it was, uh, up and coming conservatives to watch. And it shows the depth of the conservative party. Because as you know, uh, you and I have been around a long time uh, with this uh, political business. It, it shows that, that despite the fact that governments are usually defeated, not elected, there is a wealth of depth to the existing conservative caucus. And there's a lot of young people, as you say. And I think that's a big reason. Like, not only do they have a young leader in Pierre Polyev, but they have people like Shuv uh, Majumder that was just uh, elected in Calgary Heritage uh, with a massive mandate, I would uh, argue. Uh, and Shuv is that age, you know, around the 40. He's got a lot of experience, but he's still, you know, compared to some of us, young. And uh, so there's a real wealth of experience there for uh, Canadians to take a look at so that they're not just voting out a corrupt, uh, incompetent government, but they're they're going to elect some great people. Yeah, and just to sidetrack, since you brought up Shuv, I've known Shuv a while, <laughs> love the guy, and he's yeah. brilliant. I mean, I, I'd really like to see a Conservative government, if only to see him working within foreign affairs. We're talking somebody with talent, not uh, Melanie Jolie or, or something like that, exactly. to actually start speaking on an intellectual level with foreign dignitaries, leaders, and, and things such as that. Uh, Shuv's been on the show a number of times, and just, the, the, as you said, that sort of depth. I mean, it's he wasn't elected as a, a political token by any means or anything. He's no. a, a very... Uh, a smart guy who's going to do some good stuff if he gets the chance and gets out of yeah, the Yeah, he isn't like some of the parties of the left that are just attracted to nominating 
uh, candidates because they're a visible minority. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is that and proudly so. Uh, but he was really nominated and elected, I would argue, on the depth of his experience, uh, his, uh, the way he's so articulate, the way he can explain in-depth policy in the way that an average Canadian can understand. Mm -hmm. And if we had a cabinet made up of people like Shuv Majumder, uh, instead of the disastrous group of people that Trudeau has attracted, uh, we would see Canada start to revert from being the embarrassment that we've become and return to a cabinet of experienced and capable people uh, like we had under Stephen Harper. Well, yeah, and that, that, that's the, Trudeau's backed himself into a corner. I mean, if you're going to try and reinvent yourself through a cabinet shuffle and change things, fair enough, that happens in politics. Uh, but you should be looking based on merit. And he binds yeah. himself with, well, I'm going to make sure I check all those, those uh, uh, you know, social gesturing off and I got to have half of them being women. And it's not saying women aren't, uh, you know, fantastic cabinet ministers at times, but if you have fewer of them in caucus than you do men, you have a smaller pool to draw from. And, exactly. and uh, he's, he's hasn't based his cabinet typically on merit. He's, he's done it just on, on filling boxes and that won't help turn the tide right now. Well, I think, you know, having been uh, involved on the periphery with uh, Stephen Harper when he went through his cabinet selection process, uh, I know it's a terribly, terribly difficult job. Uh, but as you say, there is a balance between doing sort of what is socially acceptable, you know, the number of women, you have to have regional representation, you know, at least one cabinet minister from each of the 10 provinces, that type of thing. Uh, but the underlying Thing should always be competence, I think. Yeah. And certainly that has not been the case for eight years now. And it's been eight long years because of it. And embarrassing years at the federal, uh, international level. Well, Trudeau's cabinet has been a reflection of himself as far as exactly. depth goes. And it, it's just not served Canada well. So, I mean, certainly chomping at the bit. And you can tell it's already got a campaign feel to it. Though we might very well probably be two years away from a campaign yet. But Polyev is... You know, been rebranding a bit himself. The glasses are gone. Uh, you know, the, the, the shirt and tie is a little. He's working out. Absent. You can see. You can see the biceps. I, I, I know the, I could do the, it. The pipes are showing. And people called it fickle and and so on. But you know, it seems to be resonating. And yeah. and, and uh, that that latest ad, I saw even some liberal commentators were saying, "Gee, that was a really good ad because it was reaching out, wasn't condescending, and he's reaching to." Again, as you said, you know, the common people, the, the folks on the ground, the ones who are struggling to pay the bills, he's saying, look, I hear you. Let's do this. I mean, that's the people that have to be one, not the elites in Toronto or, uh, you know, the, the others that the ideologues have been targeting for so long. And, and again, I think this is where the, the liberals are dropping the ball and, and Polyev's uh, you know, party is well, wisely. Well, as you up. said, Corey, the number one issue, we can never forget that, is the economy and how it affects people's wallets. And people are struggling right now. They're really struggling. Uh, families are making tough choices. Kids are just going back to school. Are they wearing hand-me-downs or can they actually afford to get a new set of clothes for little Johnny to, to go to grade one? You know, these are tough choices. Uh, and the cost of groceries, we talked about it the last time I was on your program. It's only got worse. Yeah. Inflation is largely driven, in my belief, by continued government overspending. This government has wasted billions upon billions upon billions of dollars, and they continue to. And that drives up inflation, that, that type of wanton spending on the part of our government. And yet they take no responsibility for the crisis they've committed. Look at the growth in carbon tax. 
You know, there's a growing awareness amongst all Canadians that we are not going to solve climate change if there is such a thing as man-made climate change. We're not going to solve it by taxing ourselves. We're heading into a winter season soon, unfortunately, in my opinion, and people are going to have to turn up the thermostat. How are they going to be able to afford to do that with the price of groceries? And so these are the issues that I hope that Pierre continues to focus on because they're the issues that really matter. That's it. And I mean, I said it before on Twitter a little while back, though, I think I used a couple of obscenities as I do pronto on Twitter, but basically saying people don't care about climate change if they can't pay the rent or can't feed their kids. Yeah, like, exactly. It, even the most liberal of Trudeau-loving individuals, I mean, when you get your household priorities and you are still worried about climate change, fine, and you still really love the liberals, but boy, if you can't make the bills, yeah. you're going to reevaluate. You have yeah. to. We're getting into necessity. If the chunk that not only the government through taxation, carbon tax is an example, is taking, is bigger and bigger of their take-home pay, if the chunk the banks are taking through increased interest rates is bigger and bigger, those are going to be the things, rightfully so, that the average Canadian focuses on. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, everybody has to, to cope with these things. What the- happened, Corey, you know, to, speaking about issues that need to be resurrected, uh, what happened to the investigation into the Chinese interference oh. in our democracy? Yes, you know, like, uh, I wrote a where, note on it because I'd forgotten about it there, and I, I, I wanted to hit on that. Yeah, it's so, I mean, good. like, where did that go? Trudeau made another promise. Well, you know, just wait, folks. Just, you know, hold your horses. We'll have a proper investigation. The one thing I want to make sure I get in before I'm off the program, oh, yeah. Corey, is this issue, because it ties directly with this, this um, bogus uh, trial that Tamara and Chris are going through right now as we sit here. Mm-hmm. Um What happened to the proper analysis of COVID and the steps that all governments took? I've never found out. I'm sure you've never found out. It should be properly analyzed by now. What worked and what didn't? There's there's talk now about new strains, new variations of COVID. And are we supposed to be worried? Are we worried that governments will reenact lockdowns and restrictions and emergencies act and you you name it. Like, what did we learn as a nation about how, uh, in my opinion, governments overreacted with the first round of the so-called pandemic, the COVID? Because we could be facing it again, even as, re- as, as early as this winter. And yet there's been no release of a public, uh, public uh, you know, investigation just of, a, of what was done and what worked. Just an unvarnished one. I mean, during the, the pandemic, when things were happening, that's something I was screaming into the wind. Like, we need to do a cost benefit. You know, yeah. there, there's a cost with every action of the government. Is there a benefit? If they could demonstrate somehow that, okay, you know, giving a vaccine passport to restaurants somehow inexplicably is going to save, if you could demonstrate, it's going to save tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives, as they tried to claim. I might start moving to that side if it really was the bubonic plague or something going on like that. But it comes at a cost. They act as if it didn't. You know, these restaurants lost customers. These restaurants lost revenue. They, they uh, you know, people weren't, weren't coming in. And it has to be weighed. I mean, I, that if it saves one life logic is one of the dumbest things you could ever hear from somebody. Right. But that's how we worked on it, basically. If we could claim that we saved one life, we could claim the amount of freedom infringements uh, it's beyond the pale. So you're right. I mean, a review, just to look back. And no, there hasn't been a sign of that yet. 
And I would think that there's a perfect opportunity as a former politician uh, and serving longer in opposition than I did in government. Twice I was tasked with organizing question period, first for the Reform Party and later for uh, Prime Minister Harper. And, um, it, you know, when I look at question period and what they should be focusing on, I would argue that the clear opposition, the Conservative Party, should be focusing on this because they can tie it quite neatly into this trial that's going on that's fr front and center, foremost in people's minds, okay? We're seeing this every day play out in the media uh, about Tamara and, and Chris Barber. Um, so they can tie that in and say, okay, set aside the trial. What have we learned mm -hmm. about everything that unfolded uh, during that, that COVID period? And what are we going to do different if there's another round? What are we going to do different next time? Are we going to treat citizens the same way? Because you know, you're right, there is a cost. We seldom talk about the cost of delayed surgeries, delayed cancer treatments. Uh, how many people did we lose from that? Because we were so worried about you know, um, overpopulating our emergency uh, departments in our hospitals, our, you know, our, our emergency part of the, the hospital, that, that we cut off any surgeries that were necessary. Yeah. People died waiting. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Or the social cost. Children at the most influential, you know, of age, developmental, had their school disrupted for two years. Yeah. It was a mess. And they, they were scared. They were in. They were out that's going to cost for generations. Yeah. And, and again, and the worst part with that one is we should examine, we got lucky and we weren't allowed to say it earlier, but there's truth to it. Kids are immune from COVID. I'm going to say it. They're immune from COVID. I mean, we got lucky, you know, aside from some who were already ill or something, typically they did. So, I mean, they were the ones we really never should have locked down. Yet here we were closing playgrounds and arresting them for playing so, hockey. So and, and in question periods, uh, shouldn't the opposition be demanding of the government to say, what is your plan? What steps would you take if we're faced with another COVID uh, epidemic, right? Uh, I mean, is it just going to be focused on the old folks home and protecting the elderly? like a lot of us believed it should have been the first time around? Mm. Or are you going to go beyond that? Because we want to know, we demand to know what your plan is. And uh, we've never seen that. We've never seen a proper analysis. And so how can you have a proper plan? So all we can end up assuming is they're going to respond the same way if it happens again. And uh, obviously there's a, we, we should be able to respond a heck of a lot better no matter what side of it you're on. Uh, the only exactly. way to do so is to sit down and say, okay, let's... let's like take partisan up. politics out of it. Just as a, a big issue for the nation, yeah. we should be able to uh, coalesce behind something that makes sense. Well, we'll, we'll see what comes up in this session. Again, there's, there's no indications of uh, the Liberals seem to want to, to turn. So uh, uh, is going to have a lot to work with, I guess, if he wants to take control of the agenda. And... Uh, see what happens. Yeah. Well, like I said at the start of the interview, um, the difficulty, speaking from somebody that had, has been there uh, for many years, the difficulty for the opposition and for Pierre uh, is going to be to focus the public's attention on one or two or three, perhaps, issues mm -hmm. when there's probably a dozen major issues out there. Uh, hopefully, it's things like, you know, demanding a COVID plan. Uh, hopefully, it's things like um, you know, how are you going to properly address uh, the growing crunch for everyday Canadian families uh, when they're at the grocery store, when they're trying to pay the bills, when they're trying to turn the thermostat up in the home, uh, the things that really matter to the 
standard of living of Canadians. Hopefully, you know, they can zero in on some of those issues and uh, remind Canadians, constantly remind Canadians of the failures of Justin Trudeau. Well, and, and along with that as well, and the trap oppositions can fall into when you smell the blood in the water sometimes is still being on them too much. But don't forget, okay, but what are you going to do that's better? That's different. you got to yeah, exactly. put out the solutions as well. Well, we might find out a little bit yeah. about that yeah. starting tomorrow uh, because the, uh, the Conservatives are having a policy convention uh, down, uh, down east. And uh, hopefully out of that, uh, we'll see some indication of some new direction for the Conservatives were they to form our next government. Great. Well, let's hope that some good, reasonable minds come up with some solutions. In the meantime, we'll just keep picking at it and telling them how it's done. <laughs> well, there's few that are more knowledgeable than you, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. All right. Thanks, Jay. I always love it when you come in. I well, thank you very it. much and, for uh, having me. I, I know it was just the luck of the weather that you were available. <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, It was uh, either uh, be on a combine or be here with you. So, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, the combine's shut down. Hopefully it dries up enough to get out there and get the combining done as well. So, thank you very much. Thanks again, Jay. We'll talk again soon. Okay. All right, so that was Jay Hill. I know you've seen Jay on the show a number of times. Always, as we can see from the commenter, a great conversation it is. I look forward to when Jay comes in and uh, offers again. You know, this is a guy who's been on the benches, uh, smacked against the wall in the political house a few times and seen what works and what doesn't. We need more of that discussion. That's why I wanted to end off with, you know, the discussion with pointing out it's easy to be critical and it's important to be, but you also have to offer a solution. So we'll see what comes out in the weekend because uh, we've got a whole lot of problems. And, and yeah, you know, something Jay brought up that I hadn't really thought of, but it's that there's so many issues. There's so many things going on. And, and if the conservatives try to take on everything, it'll kind of get lost in the mix. You know, it's like you want to pick three, four, maybe, and really hammer home on those. Uh, we'll see. Strategically, though, they seem to be doing very well right now. The other question is, and we're seeing that asked more, is Trudeau going to resign? I mean, for everybody looking at it, I, I think with common sense, and I predicted as much on, on uh, you know, Twitter and so much, but it was easy to predict. Because if I'm wrong, I just won't mention it later. And uh, if I'm right, I'll retweet it later and say, I told you so. But I do think Trudeau is going to step back in the next few months. I don't think he wants to, but where he doesn't know how to turn it around. And people say he won't do it because he's so vain he'll stay to the end. That's possible. It's possible. But he's also so vain, does he want to go out with the electoral foot on his butt when he loses the election dramatically? Or will he just kind of retreat while he can and, and let somebody else uh, try and clean up the mess he's made? I still think, I mean, the, the, the pressure is going to come out. There was a, you know, looking at legacy media, but Don Martin, he's been a commentator for a long, long time. And, and he wrote a piece saying, you know, when's somebody going to take Justin aside for the talk? You know, somebody who's going to candidly say, look, and it's time. It's, it's time to, to move along. Cause it's, it's, it's what I was saying to Jay as well. Like what does he see strategically that the government could do that would turn this around, turn the support around and, and make it happen. And Justin tried a couple of things. It, it didn't work. It failed. The only other thing the liberals can do really is change the leader. Um, some people have said, I've kind of hinted as much, you know, on Twitter, but jokingly, stay in there, Justin, stay in, because, I mean, maybe they can get wiped right out of Kim Campbell style by the time the next election comes. But the amount of damage that that hammerhead could do with two more years in there, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, sure, it would crush the Liberal Party, but, boy, they, they could really crush the country in that two years leading up to it. And if he comes to a point of no return, again, he's that vain. It says, I talked about with the immigration thing. 
uh, I, I'm probably misquoting it, but there's an old statement about, you know, a true dictator, what being willing to burn a nation to the ground to rule over the ashes. And uh, Trudeau might be vain enough to do that. Not, not just stop caring altogether what happens. And it's difficult to remove them. It, it, liberals don't rip out their own leaders like conservatives do. They, they, they tend to be more drone-like. They will follow. They'll have their misgivings. They'll grumble in the bars. But eventually they will quietly start ripping at them. There's some with ambition. Yeah, back to the trial and Tamara and Chris. You know, we'll see what happens with that. And, and I've been watching Twitter. It's divided. You know, people are fighting the whole battle all over again because it's gone to the court. I'm going to throw out my prediction here that I'll say I told you so if I'm right on it uh, later. Uh, or, you know, we'll just forget about it if I'm wrong. Well, I think what's going to happen by the end of this anyways, uh, they're going to get convicted on at least a couple of the charges. Maybe a few of them will be thrown out. I think that the sentences will be suspended based on the amount of time they spent in custody already. And... Uh, perhaps a fine. That's what I think is going to happen. And probably nobody on either side is going to be satisfied with it. Uh, there's people screaming for blood. There's lunatics saying, you know, that, that a barber and leech should be getting 10 years in jail. And, uh, you know, there's, there's other people saying that they shouldn't get as much as a parking ticket. Now, it's, where it's going to land is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and, and as I said, both sides are not going to be happy with it. We'll see what happens though. And, uh, you know, again, don't, Always realize it's surprising with judges. Some of them take their role very, very seriously to, to, to try and be balanced and, uh, you know, give as, as fair a ruling in something as they can. Because, I mean, these guys aren't villains. They aren't criminals. They didn't lead. I mean, some of the, the, the language, and it drives me bananas, they didn't lead an insurrection. And a lot of people try to compare this, and they're comparing because some of the sentencing's happening with the stuff that happened on January 6th in the States. January 6th was different. That really was. People saying, we can storm the seat of government and turn over an election. Most of the people in the crowds outside probably weren't even thinking that, but those, there were many running it. That's what they were trying to, that is the definition of an insurrection. It really is. And I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of whether the election was fair or corrupted or not, or whatever. The bottom line is when you've had an election and a group of people try to overturn it by force, that's an insurrection. That never happened in Ottawa. That never happened with the convoy. That was never the intent of the convoy. The, the only thing close was it was some goofy memorandum of understanding on a Facebook page. I hope that comes up in the courts. People say, look at this, they're talking about going to the governor general and turning over the prime minister. Oh yeah, that was realistic. You know, why don't get ET to come back home and fix things? For Guys, it wasn't going to happen. It was some nut bar on Facebook who has absolutely no understanding of the government of Canada. Had nothing to do with the the convoy protest. Aside from that weird little thing, nobody was trying to storm Parliament. Nobody was trying to tear the Prime Minister out of power. Their demand, whether you want to see it as reasonable or not reasonable, was having the mandates end. That's it. It's a big demand. It's a demand the government wasn't willing to back off on. But there was no insurrection. These guys are, are, are not the types of uh, people that are looking to harm people. Again, think of the time frame. I mean, look at all the protests we've seen over all of our lives that usually end up with smashed windows, rioting, turned over cars, assaults. None of that happened. None of that happened. The worst thing that happened was uh, horns were honked that really annoyed the hell out of a lot of people in Ottawa for a while. And, uh, you know, again, you're going to have that discussion, but we can't call it a, a, an insurrection. It was nothing like that. And if it was, people would have been charged for it. You know, that's the bottom line. They're charged with mischief. Mischief. 
and it can, that can come with some pretty heavy consequences, mischief. Mischief is kind of a, a blanket charge that can range from anywhere from a little bit of graffiti all the way to organizing a protest. But part of what the judge has to look at as well, how much threat is that they're going to do it again? How much risk is there? And the irony is, if the, if the judge cracked down and gave them five years in jail each, he will martyr them. And that will increase the chances of larger future protests. I'm not saying it should be a threat anyways or whatnot, but that's, that's the reality of it. If he cracks down hard, and it won't pre prevent. I mean, isn't that the goal to prevent? I, I've seen no language, no uh, attitude. You know, Tamara's been on the show a number of times. They're not, the mandates are gone. They're not interested. They're, they're not chronic protesters uh, like a lot of left-wingers are. They just want to go home and get back to their lives. It's over for now. Bring back the mandates, that could change. I, I got a feeling it'd be a whole new crop of people leading the next protest and there will be another protest. So it's like Jay said as well, we need more confidence in this country that it's over or that if it happens again, we do things more wisely in the future. I mean, there could be a real pandemic in the future. There could be another outbreak of the bubonic plague or Spanish flu or something that really is devastating us. And look at the trust that's been broken between the government and the people. People won't voluntarily lock down. They won't put up with it nearly as easily in the future as they did last time because they realized the government deceived them. The government overreacted and the government did a lot of terrible actions that didn't help make people safer whatsoever. So if a real threat comes along, a real pandemic, we're going to have people protesting against measures that might actually have helped us. If there really was leprosy going around, maybe we would want to isolate people a little bit. Nobody's got the trust now. Maybe if we examine a little bit, as I said, do a bit of cost benefit, look what happened, see what was done right, see what was done wrong, people would feel a little more confident in the leadership if and when another catastrophe comes. We'll see. Okay, that's the time I got for today, guys. Uh, there's a lot more stuff I want to talk about, but Jay and I went on long. We covered a lot of stuff, and that's okay. And uh, we're going to cover more. I'll be uh, hosting The Pipeline, which is another Western Standard production. That'll be airing a little later as well. Tune in for that. We'll be discussing more of these issues, including the trial and some other things. And uh, keep an eye, westernstandardonline.news. Guys, take out a membership. That's how we stay independent. $9.99 a month, 100 bucks a year worth every nickel guys and it allows us to keep doing what we're doing so thanks for tuning in today guys and uh, we'll do it all again next week the current Northbridge feed grain prices are as follows cash barley remains at 345 feed wheat added four dollars sitting at 364 while corn is holding at 360 in the milling wheat markets December Minneapolis futures jumped 20 cents at 782 per bushel with local hard red spring bid for September movement at 9.25 per bushel delivered. Over to the oil seeds nearby, canola futures are down $2.90 at 794.60 per ton, with delivered values for September movement at 17.68 per bushel. The pulse markets are unchanged, with red lentils trading at 35 cents a pound and yellow peas at $11 per bushel. Looking at the cattle markets, October live cattle spiked 77.5 cents at 180.72 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing and picked up on-farm options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Vera Buziak at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, 
long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.